turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. Let's read at verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, we can, as that song that we just sung says, we can trust your word because it's true. It is truth. We thank you that we can have the privilege of having a copy of it that we can hold in our hands, that we can read and study. We pray that you would help us to, in some way, enter into the magnitude of the treasure that you've given to us in your word. And we ask that you would teach your word to our hearts today and make the message clear that we might examine ourselves today in the light of the things that we're going to talk about. Thanks from your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're continuing with our study of Israel's final words to his sons. And it's very important to notice the context of his words. The context of his words are set by the Spirit of God in verse 1. Gather yourselves together, Jacob says, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. The context, the setting of Israel's words are the last days. And that phrase is uniquely associated with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen all of his comings in Israel's prophecies here. In verses 8 through 11, in Israel's words to Judah, we've seen the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The time when the last days began. Verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Shiloh, as we have talked about, means peace bringer. And it's an Old Testament name for the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father, the mighty God, God manifest in the flesh, the child that would be born, the son that would be given, who Isaiah prophesied of, the coming Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came the first time when the scepter had departed from Judah. There was no uh, king over Israel. There were no more lawgivers or governors in Israel who came forth from that tribe. And the Lord Jesus came in that exact time period, what Paul calls the fullness of the time. I think he came then at least for one reason, because he is the king. He is the Lord. 
and his glory he would not give or share with another. And so he comes in this time period when there was no king in Israel, when the scepter had departed, when there was no more lawgiver from between Judah's feet because he was going to offer himself to Israel as their king. And we see the prophecy of that event here in verse 11, binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. We talked about that last week, how we can see in those words the prophecy of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 and the verses that we read in the New Testament of the day that the Lord Jesus presented himself to the nation of Israel. But the Lord was rejected. And just a few days later, he was crucified. And we see the prophecy of his crucifixion in the last part of verse 11. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. That happened in the Garden of Gethsemane as the Lord looked into the cup of our sin. It happened on the cross of Calvary as he trod the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the judgment of God against our sin. As he took our place on the cross of Calvary. That is the first coming of the Lord Jesus into the world. But then we see his second coming. We see his second coming in the last words of verse 10. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. That is a description of the Lord's coming to the air because the people were not gathered to him at his first coming. That's a description of the Lord's coming to the air when his people, those who have trusted him as their Savior, will be gathered unto him. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. But those words in verse 10 not only apply to the church, they apply to the nation of Israel. In the last part of verse 11, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Those words are a dual prophecy, if you will. Those words not only describe the, uh, the, the Lord's work on the cross of Calvary at, uh, at his first coming, they describe what he is going to do at his second coming to the earth. He's going to pour out his judgment on the people of this world. He's going to pour out his judgment on those who have rejected him, who would not re receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And he is going to tread them in his anger and trample them in his fury as he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And it's then that Israel's words in verses 8 and 9 will come to pass, as the line of the tribe of Judah will open the seals of the judgment of God, and his hand shall be in the neck of his enemies, and he shall break them in pieces and rule them with a rod of iron. And it's then as we see at the end of verse 10, that the people of Israel will be gathered unto him. And so Israel's words here are a very detailed prophecy of the last days, a very detailed prophecy of the comings of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth the first time to die for our sins, 
to the heir to receive his people, the church, unto himself, and then finally to the earth to put down all rule, and he shall rule forever and ever. But I believe there's something else that Israel's prophecy tells us. And it's very important. I guess we would classify it under the uh, heading of a personal message. And I believe it's a, a prophecy about the condition of the people of God in the last days. Notice Genesis 49 and verse 3. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, and the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. He was the first fruit of Jacob's loins, if you will. And as the firstborn, as the first fruit, Reuben held a very special place. And that place is described to us in verse 3. And so because of his place in Jacob, to Reuben belonged authority in the family. To Reuben belonged preeminence over his brethren. To Reuben belonged a double portion of his father's goods. Succession in the government of the family when Jacob would pass away. And the exercise of the priesthood in the family. (coughs) Excuse me. The firstborn held that special place. And the thought that I would suggest to you this morning is that the position of the firstborn here, the position of Jacob's firstborn, his first fruit, is a picture of the believer's position in Christ. When we trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior, we are, James says, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're the first fruits unto God. And all of these things that we read about in verse 3, I believe, are a description of what we have in Christ. His might and his strength are available to be manifest in us. Ephesians 3 and verse 16, Paul says, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man as the first fruit of God. His might and his strength is in us. These words, the excellency of dignity, apply to us. The word dignity is an interesting word. It means rising. It means elevation. It means to lift up. It means to bear up. If we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, that is what happened to us when we got saved. He has brought us up also out of an horrible pit 
out of the miry clay and set our feet upon a rock and established our goings. He has borne us on eagles' wings and brought us unto himself. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have the excellency of dignity. We also have the excellency of his power. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What treasure? What treasure? Christ in you, in this earthen vessel, the hope of glory. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, listen, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And so we have his might and his strength, the excellency of his dignity and the excellency of his power. And so as a result of this, we occupy in Christ... As Reuben occupied in Jacob a position of authority because we've been made kings unto God and his father. We've received a double portion of our father's goods because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And he's made us priests unto God and his Father. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We read that in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. That was Brother Jim's text for his excellent message Wednesday night on the priesthood of the believer. Um, If you weren't here Wednesday night, I know a number of people were gone to the convention and you weren't able to hear that message, I would encourage you to go on Sermon Audio and listen to it. It was a blessing to think about the priesthood of the believer. And we mention it here because in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 3, the position that Reuben had in his father is the same position that the believer has in our father. The same position that we have in Christ. And so I believe that what that means is that what is said of Reuben in the context of what will befall him in the last days is a a prophecy, a personal prophecy, if you will, of what will befall believers, what will be the condition of the believers, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior in the last days. And notice the first thing that we read about Reuben in verse 4. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Unstable as water. There are so many things that could be and should be said about these words, so many that we can't uh, 
get to them all in one message, but at least we want to start. We don't think about water being unstable or volatile. After all, we can take it and poke the lids on this, shake it up, and it won't explode. Nothing will happen to it. Um, I won't do this, but you can throw a match on it, and it won't burn. So we don't think of water as being unstable. But God has put a message in that word, a very important message. As water becomes hot, it becomes unstable, if you will. Becomes unstable when it reaches 212 degrees Fahrenheit in the sense that it changes form. Uh, we, we learned back in 7th or 8th grade science that as the water heats, the molecules get going faster and faster, and then they begin to just fly off from the water. And we don't see the individual molecules, but we see the change that takes place as water changes from a liquid to a gas, steam, water vapor. Water becomes unstable, if you will, at the other end of the spectrum, at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, in the sense that it changes form as the water gets colder and colder, the molecules move slower and slower until they do not move at all. And when the water becomes cold at 32 degrees, the molecules stop moving at all, and water changes into a solid, ice. And hot and cold are two words that describe or that we're going to use to describe this morning the unstableness of water. But God describes another state of water. We're not going to have time to talk about it this morning, but I'll just mention it uh, in passing. You can be thinking about it. He describes a state of water between hot and cold, a state he calls lukewarm, a state that's not hot, a state that's not cold, a state that is in between, a state that is a mixture of hot and cold. A state that is tepid, lukewarm. And it's very instructive that we only find this word lukewarm one time in the Bible. And that's in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16. And the Lord uses that word to describe the Laodicean church. The church of the last days, the last church. The church that will be in existence when the Lord Jesus comes to the air to take his people out of this world. And so Israel's prophecy is that God's people of the last days will be unstable as water. Just like Reuben 
And so we ought to be able to see this instability in Reuben's life, not so that we can gather around him, as it were, in judgment, but that we might judge ourselves, that we might see the same instability in our lives. And so that's what we want to do for a few minutes this morning. Look back at Genesis chapter 37, if you will. Genesis chapter 37. And look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Joseph's brothers hated him. We see that in verse 4. And I don't see Reuben's name excluded in any way here. Not in verse 4 or in verse 8 where we read these same words again. In verse 8, it's a response to Joseph's dream. The dream where it's very obvious that his brothers are going to bow down to him. His brothers understood that dream. And they say in verse 8, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Now think about it. If Joseph was going to reign over them, that is in direct conflict with Reuben's position as the firstborn. And so I believe that Reuben is in this, these words that we read, they hated him. We would call that cold, wouldn't we? And I believe that the reason for their hatred is not only because Jacob loved Joseph more because he was the son of his old age. That's certainly one reason. But I believe it goes deeper than that. I believe it had to do with Joseph's manner of life. I believe it had to do with Joseph's testimony. The coat of many colors that identified him as someone in the family who had a testimony. Someone in the family who was different. Someone in the family who wasn't living like everyone else. The way that Joseph lived at age 17, and this is where we pick up his life. The way that he lived at age 17 in Potiphar's house when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. The way that he lived, how then can I do this great wickedness, he said, and sin against God. The way that he fled fornication. That attitude of being concerned about wicked behavior that was a sin against God was the way he lived in Jacob's house before his brethren. Joseph was an example of someone growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And he was viewed by his brothers with resentment and hatred because Joseph's 
condition, Joseph's testimony showed up the condition of the lives of his brothers. And that is part of the coldness. That is part of the unstableness of the people of God in this hour. A resentment, a hatred of their brothers and sisters in Christ who are coming to the truth that because Christ lives in them, they ought to be more like him and less like themselves. And that can cause their brothers and sisters in Christ around them to be cold toward them. It can cause them to be resentful and hateful because the godliness of the few exposes the lack of spiritual desire in the lives of the majority. So we'll put that in the cold part of Reuben's life. But here in this chapter, when Jacob sends Joseph to check on the welfare of his brothers as they're out keeping their father's sheep, his brothers say in verse 20, if you'll look there, Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Now look at verse 21. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood. But cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him. That he, and this is Reuben's intention, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. We would describe that, we would put that action on the hot side of Reuben's life, wouldn't we? When Joseph is sold to the Midianites in verse 28, Reuben returns in verse 29. And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. We put that on the hot side, on the stability side of Reuben's life. But now look at verse 30. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? Notice Reuben's words there at the end of verse 30. And I, whither shall I go? There is the coldness and pride of the flesh. In a moment of time, Reuben goes from hot to cold. The question here should not be, and I, whither shall I go? The question ought to be, and Joseph, where did Joseph go? But Reuben is worried about himself. He's worried about protecting his life. Ah, whither shall I go? There's no questioning as to where Joseph has gone. There's no mention of going after the Midianites and giving them their money back so Joseph can be released. Only I, whither shall I go? And the coldness continues in verse 31. And they took Joseph's coat 
and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the goat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. If Reuben was not the author of the plan, he goes along with it. And as the oldest son, I believe Reuben would have been the one to have presented that coat to his father. I believe he would have been the one to speak those cold, cold words in verse 32. This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. Knowing that Jacob would know who the coat belonged to. There was only one coat like that. Knowing the conclusion that he would draw. That an evil beast devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And in the coldness of his heart, Reuben protected himself. And he let his father believe the deceitful set of circumstances that they had put forth for 22 years. Would we be that cold? Could we be that cold? Well, 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And what is the first manifestation that Paul gives of the perilous times of the last days? 2 Timothy 3 and verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Just like Reuben. Self-consumed. Turn over to Genesis 42. Reuben and his other nine brothers, ten of them, have gone down to Egypt to buy corn. Benjamin's at home, Joseph's in Egypt. And, of course, they have to come to Joseph in order to buy corn. And they don't recognize him. Joseph recognizes them, and he makes himself strange to them. We talked about this when we were studying this chapter. And he speaks roughly to them, and he accuses them of being spies. He puts them in jail for three days, and then he has a solution for them. He proposes a plan to them. He agrees to let them go. He, believe, he agrees to let them buy corn if they will leave one of their brothers there until they can bring Benjamin back. In other words, you, you leave your brother here and that will let me know that you're going to bring Benjamin back. And they agree. Now look at verse 21. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required 
In verse 21, his brothers. And in verse 22, Reuben owns his sin. God said in Genesis 9 and verse 5, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every man's brother will I require it. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he him. Reuben owns his worthiness of death. That is very hot and fervent behavior. That's stability to own our sin. But when Jacob's sons come back and they tell him what has happened and how they left Simeon there as proof that they would come back with Benjamin so that Simeon could be released. Jacob refuses. He's not interested in that plan. He's got corn, and that'll hold him for a while. And so, verse 36 of chapter 42, And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. And in verse 38, the conclusion of Jacob is, My son shall not go down with you. But notice what Reuben says in verse 37. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons, if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, that is Benjamin, and I will bring him to thee again. Now, on the surface, this is a statement of stability. A hot statement of behavior, if you will. Put this in the hot category. But the thought that I would suggest to you is that it is neither hot nor stable. Reuben is not willing to give up his life. He's willing to give up the life of his two sons. But he's not willing to give up his own life for his brother Joseph. And that becomes very evident when we read about Judah in in Genesis 43 and verse 9. Where Judah says, I will be surety for him. You let me take Benjamin back, Dad, and I will be surety for him. I will give my life is what... Judah is saying, I'll give my life if that's what it takes. I'll bear the blame forever for this. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Reuben was not willing to deny himself. This is a characteristic of God's people of the last days. People who will own their sin, people who will own their worthiness of death, but after they're saved... We want to hold on to our life, don't we? 
We want to try to have the best of both worlds. We don't want to give, we don't want to utterly destroy the flesh. We want to keep the best of the old life. We don't want to admit that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And so the solution is to reckon ourselves to be dead. The solution is to be crucified with Christ. But that's not a very pleasant thing. It's not something that we desire to do by nature. And so the characteristic of our day are believers like Reuben who are unstable as water. Believers who are hot and then cold. Believers who are up and down. Believers who have another characteristic of water. And it's a characteristic of the unstableness of water. And that characteristic is conformity. Water conforms to its surroundings. If it's in a circular bucket, then it looks like a circle. If It appears to be cylindrical in shape. If it's in a rectangular pan, then it takes on the shape of a rectangle or a square. Or it takes on the shape of a water bottle. Water conforms to its surroundings. And that's part of the unstableness of water. And it's a characteristic of believers in the last days. Believers who are conformed to this world. Conform to the Bible versions of of the world. Conform to the music of this world. Believers who do not want to offend, and so they're, they're willing to be unequally yoked together with the world to somehow reach more people and greater crowds in the work of the Lord. Believers who are like Jehoshaphat who the Lord sent a prophet to and asked him as he had joined affinity, as he had made marriages with Ahab. The message from heaven was, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Believers who are unstable as water are children. Children. They've never got beyond the... First principles of the doctrine of Christ, as we read in Hebrews chapter 6. They're children, they're tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. And notice what Jacob says of Reuben, who was unstable as water. And it's what the Spirit of God says of believers today who are in that condition. Genesis 49 and verse 4. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Thou shalt not excel. Believers who are in the condition of Reuben, believers who are hot and cold and up and down and conforming to the world are not going to excel at the judgment seat of Christ. 
they'll be ashamed at his appearing. As the fire consumes the wood and hay and stubble of their unstable life. If we know the Lord today, are we like Reuben? Unstable as water, hot and cold and up and down, conforming to the world so we can get along in the world? Or are we like David who said, My heart is fixed? My heart is fixed. Or we like Paul who wrote about being rooted and grounded in the faith, like Peter who wrote about being established in the truth. Is that how we are today as believers? If you're here today and you're lost, you have no stability. None. You are unstable as water. You're like the troubled sea that we read about in Isaiah chapter 57. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The good news this morning is that you can have stability. You can have stability in an unstable world. If you'll cry to the Lord in your trouble, if you'll turn to him from your sin, he will make the storm in your life a calm. He'll calm the waves and he'll still the storm and he'll give you the peace and the stability of an expected end. You can't get anything more peaceful or stable than that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would just take these words this morning and use them in our hearts to convict us. Help us to examine ourselves today. Are we unstable as water? Are we hot? Are we cold? Are we up? Are we down? Are we conforming to the world? Or are we fixed, rooted, and grounded and established in your word. Speak to any who are lost here today. The calm that they seek is not in the world. The peace that they seek is not in the world. They're tossed about in the troubled sea of their sin. The Lord Jesus can save them today, and he can make the storm calm. We ask you to speak to our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.